0: The United States is essentially a pagan nation. Our money still says in God we trust, and the majority of Americans still claim to believe in God. But for many decades, we have been a society dominated by practical atheism and moral relativism. In fact, the decisions by the leaders and the courts of our land would lead one to the conclusion that America is not only non-Christian it is fast becoming anti-Christian. The Ten Commandments are no longer allowed on the walls of our schools. Prayer has been banned from the classroom. Nativity scenes have been ruled unacceptable on government property. Deviant sexual behavior, especially homosexuality, is sanctioned. We live in a pagan nation. And what are we as Christians to do well, some well meaning Christian leaders have founded organizations to counteract these anti Christian influences. They say it's time we stand up for our rights, it's time we fight fire with fire, and so they have essentially declared war on the non Christian culture and they organize protests that often get them arrests and lead extremists to do things like bomb and burn and kill and in an effort to fight for their rights they sue school districts and local municipalities other Christian leaders have attacked the non-christian society through the political arena their thoughts and their plans and their time and their energy are being spent trying to Christianize America through politics trying to make our nation more ethical. I have one fundamental problem with both of those approaches. And that is that they divide people into camps under the wrong flag. They define people into groups by a criteria of moral standards rather than spiritual life. And the result is that Christians find themselves in the same camp, arm in arm with modern day Pharisees because they're fighting the same agenda. And Christians find themselves viewing sinners as the enemy rather than the mission field. Listen, the church has one single divine calling in the world and that is to bring sinful people to salvation through Jesus Christ. We are not to be fighting against this anti-Christian culture in order to make our lives a little easier. And we are not to be trying to improve the culture by changing people's minds about moral issues. We are to be speaking and living out the gospel so that people come to salvation in Christ. Let me ask you something. If you restore a person from a criminal to a model citizen, or from a libertarian to a republican, or from a pro-abortionist to an anti-abortionist, or even from an atheist to a theist, and he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what is his destiny? hell you see it makes no difference whether a person goes to hell as a policeman a junkie or a judge it's all the same in sinful people do not need a cosmetic change they do not need to be reformed they need to be transformed and that can only happen through the gospel and we are the only people who have that message So in this pagan society, what are we as Christians to do? Well, Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3. He tells us three things about our relationship with the world. Number one, the responsibilities that we have toward the world. Number two, the reasons we are to carry out those responsibilities. And then thirdly, the results if we do. First of all, the responsibilities in verses 1 and 2. And here Paul underlines two responsibilities that we have in the world. Number one, we are to be good citizens. Verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. What is our response to rulers and authorities? What should be our response to the secular government? Paul points out three things. Number one, we are to be subject. That word means To place yourself beneath them. To put yourself under their authority. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. God gave the authority to that government. And we are to be subject to them. Christians ought to be the most cooperative citizens of all. Second responsibility, we're to be obedient. We're not only to have the right attitude of submission, we are to have the right actions of obedience. We are to keep the laws, we are to pay our taxes, we are to follow their directives. The only exception is when they tell you to do something that contradicts what God tells you to do. And then we have to say with Peter and the apostles in Acts 5:29, we must obey God rather than man. But when they do not, we are to obey the government. And the third thing, we're to be ready for every good deed. Obedience is doing what is expected, good deeds is going beyond what is expected, and we are to go beyond the standard, we are to do good for others. And the word ready indicates that it's not something we're to do reluctantly. We are to do it anxiously, eagerly, and willingly. So we're to be good citizens. When the government tells us to do something, we are to submit and obey. And when a need arises, we are to be ready for every good deed. You say, well, Paul obviously didn't know what kind of government we were going to have. Because... They're using our tax dollars to subsidize immoral art. And they're using our tax dollars to distribute condoms in schools. If Paul had known what kind of government we would have today, he never would have said this. Well, what kind of government did Paul live under? He lived under the Roman Empire. A totally pagan government engulfed by idolatry and slavery and extortion and prostitution and exorbitant taxation. In fact, the emperor at that time was Nero, a man known as a despotic, oppressive, unjust, brutal man. You see, these principles are not conditional. They apply to any and every government. No matter what they are like, we are to be good citizens. Secondly, we're to be good neighbors, verse 2. And in verse 2, if you notice the last two words, he's speaking about how we ought to behave to all men. And Paul names four things here that ought to characterize our relationship with the world. Number one, you are to malign no one, in verse 2. When you're in the office, you're not to be characterized as one who slanders others. You are not to be characterized as one who runs down other people. And notice, who does it say we're to malign? No one. So let me back up and remind you that that also includes the president. That also includes politicians. We as Christians are not to malign our political leaders. When we do, it hinders our testimony. What are we supposed to be doing instead? Well, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority. We are not to be maligning our leaders. We are to be praying for them. Secondly, he says we are to be uncontentious That means we're not to be fussing and fighting and feuding all the time. You say, but what if I know I'm right? Well, Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.24, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Even when I know I'm right, I'm not to fight, I'm not to quarrel, I'm not to argue you know some christians are known for their argumentative spirit and though they win a lot of arguments they rarely ever win people you see even when i when what i say may be right the way i say it can make it wrong And when we draw battle lines against unbelievers over moral issues, we lose before we ever start because we have made them the enemy. And they are not the enemy. They are the mission field. And so we're to be uncontentious. We're to stay out of conflicts. And then thirdly, he tells us, we're to be gentle. That word means we're to yield to others. We're not to be stubborn. We're not to insist on our own rights. William Hendrickson says this word has the idea of a sweet reasonableness. We're to be gentle. And then fourthly, he tells us, we're to be showing every consideration for all men. And that word consideration is translated most of the time in the New Testament as meekness. It's used in 2 Corinthians 10, 1, where Paul speaks about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness. It's putting the rights and the needs of others ahead of my own. And that's a difficult thing to do. That doesn't come naturally. And that's why in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23, we find that this is one of the fruit of the Spirit. We are not to be advocating our own rights in the world. We are to put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Now, this phrase is really a play on words because Paul says we're to have all meekness for all men. Same word. We're to have all meekness for all men. We prefer to have some meekness for some people, don't we? Or all meekness for some people or some meekness for all people. Paul says we're to have all meekness, all consideration for all people. And that covers the whole gamut. Homeless, drunks, junkies, homosexuals, prostitutes, we show all concern for all of them. And so there's the responsibilities. We're to be good citizens, and we're to be good neighbors. And then secondly, he gives us the reasons in verses 3 to 7. Here Paul gives us two reasons why we're to relate this way to the lost world. And the first reason is empathy in verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves. If you need some motivation, just turn back the hands of time. God says, when I found you, you weren't too hot either. And he names seven things here about the way we used to be. Number one, he says we were foolish. We had no spiritual insight. We didn't understand God. We didn't understand his plan. We didn't understand his truth. We were clueless. Secondly, he says, we were disobedient. We look at sinners today and we say, they just don't do right. And God says, look who's talking. I have saved you and you're still not doing right. Disobedient. Thirdly, He says we were deceived in verse 3. We were led astray. We were being duped. By who? By Satan. Revelation 12, 9 says he deceives the whole world. We were believing his false promises. We were living in a world of unreality. And then fourthly, he says we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We look at certain unbelievers and we say he's a homosexual. Ugh! And God says, when I found you, you were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Maybe not the same ones, but you were enslaved to lusts and pleasures. The word "lust" means sinful desires. The word pleasures means sinful satisfactions. In fact, the Greek word is hedonai, from which we get the word hedonism. It's the insatiable pursuit of self-satisfaction. We were pursuing our lusts And pleasures calling it freedom when in reality, we were slaves. And then fifthly, he says, spending our life in malice and envy. Why? Because the pleasure didn't give us enough satisfaction. And so we tore down other people to make us feel good and we envied, we desired what they had. And then sixthly, he says, we were hateful. That means we were people that others found it easy to hate. We made a lot of enemies. We were detestable and despicable. Most people are when they're totally self-centered. And then he goes on to say, finally, seventh, hating one another. And that's what happens when self-centered people live together. They don't get along. I don't like her. I can't stand being around them. Why should we be gentle and meek and uncontentious toward unbelievers? The first reason is empathy. Paul says we were just like them. Why is it that we're so surprised when we see unbelievers acting like unbelievers? Because we used to be just like them. And there's nothing more tragic than smug, self-righteous Christians sitting around damning the sinful people around them. And when we find ourselves slipping into that mode, Paul says, you just need a little flashback to where you used to be. You were just like them. So the number one reason is empathy. Number two reason is gratitude in verses 4 to 7. Notice verse 4. But... That's Paul's favorite little conjunction. It interrupts the dismal picture of our past. In verse 3, he says, For we also were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, hateful. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. We were but God. There is one reason and one reason alone why you are not the way you used to be. And that's the first three words in verse 5. He saved us. And if you'll notice, it's all initiated by God. It was, verse 4, His kindness, His love. Verse 5, His mercy. Verse 7, His grace. It was all His doing. Now, verses 4 to 7 constitute one long sentence, and it's really a beautiful summary of our salvation. And we can pick out four things here about our salvation. God's motive, God's means, God's method, and God's mission. First of all, God's motive, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Why did God save us? Two motives are mentioned in verse 4. Number one is his kindness. That means his goodness, his generosity. And it's especially shown toward undeserving people. This is the same word used in Luke 6.35 where it says that God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. His kindness. Secondly, it says his love for mankind. That's one word in the Greek. It's the word philanthropy from which we get the English word philanthropy. Philos means love. Anthropos means man. It is the love of man. And what a contrast. The end of verse 3 says, we were hateful and hating one another. Man was hating each other And what happened? God loved man. And when did God's kindness and love appear? The very same time grace appeared back in chapter 2 and verse 11. They appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. The motive for our salvation was not found in us. It was found in God. It's His kindness and His love. And then secondly, here we see God's means in verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. One of the simplest and clearest truths of the gospel is the most difficult one for people to receive. Salvation is not based on good works. You do not become a Christian by acting like a Christian. Most people think that God grades on a curve. If we can just get into about the 70% range of people, maybe we'll get in. And that's why when you ask people, most people respond to that question by saying, I'm doing the best that I can. I'm trying to get above the curve. But see, God doesn't grade on a curve. fact God doesn't even give grades salvation is pass fail and the cutoff point is a hundred percent perfection and guess what nobody has ever passed nobody has ever come up to the standard of God and so the only way that people get into heaven is one way and that's the way described in verse five according to his mercy Our salvation isn't based on God's justice. It's based on God's mercy. God didn't give us what we deserve. He gave us what we don't deserve. It isn't good people who get to heaven. It is sinners who have been saved by the mercy of God. And then the third thing we can point out here is God's method in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6 how does god do it it says by the washing of regeneration the word regeneration means rebirth that's what god does for us at salvation 2 corinthians 5:17 says if anyone is in christ he is a new creation god doesn't just fix us up he makes us new he causes us to be born again and here he relates that new creation under the figure of a bath, And that's the same figure Jesus used in speaking to his disciples in John 13, 10. He says, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And what did God use to wash you? Well, it was the blood of Christ. And it doesn't just make you Better. It makes you brand new. But not only that, look at the rest of verse 5. He says, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Renewing is that process by which we grow and develop in our new life. He made us a new creation. He also placed his spirit inside of us so that we could put off the old and put on the new. You know, there's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit today. How do you recognize the work of the Spirit of God in your life? Well, it's not because your hands start shaking. It's not because you get all fluttery inside. It's not because you become super Christian and you can jump tall cues at a single bound. The way you can tell that the Spirit of God is at work in your life is that you do on Monday what you heard on Sunday. You see, He is in the process of renewing you. It doesn't matter how excited you got about it. He's changing you. He's putting off the old and putting on the new. That's His work inside of you. He is changing you into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's a day-by-day-by-day by day by day process that He is working out in you. And then verse 6 goes on to say about the Holy Spirit, whom He, God, poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's a great verse. You have all the Holy Spirit you need to be all that God has called you to be. He has poured Him out richly upon you. So you don't need to get more of Him. He just needs to get more of you. And then the fourth thing we see here is God's mission in verse 7. That being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That word justified is an important word. That word means declared righteous. God took guilty sinners and He declared us righteous. Why? So that we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are not only born again as God's children, we not only possess eternal life, God has also made us His heirs. We will take part in His inheritance. We will share what God has. In fact, Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 says, we are joint heirs with Christ. That means we get what Christ gets. And Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says, He is the heir of all things. We are heirs. Join heirs with Christ. We will inherit all things. Wow. You've come a long way. So that's the description of our salvation. God's motive. His kindness and His love. God's means. Not on the basis of our righteous deeds. But His mercy. God's method. He caused us to be reborn. And poured out His Spirit upon us. To cause us to be renewed day by day. And God's mission, he took guilty sinners and declared us righteous, gave us his life, and made us his heirs. And that's the second reason why we ought to be good citizens and good neighbors in a pagan society, and that is our gratitude to God. You see, we can't sit around and look at this lost world and say they don't deserve our help when we understand that we didn't deserve salvation. Our gratitude to God for what He's given us ought to motivate us to share it with those around us. And then thirdly, we see the results in verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. These things, what are these things? The things He's just been talking about in terms of our salvation, the message of salvation by grace. He says to Titus, I want you to speak it confidently. Why? So that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Two things will result when the gospel is preached. The first is that good deeds will occur in the lives of believers. Good works do not earn salvation, but they are the result of salvation. And where grace is preached, good works will follow. And then the second thing that will result is that it will be good and profitable, notice the end of verse 8, for men. What men? The people of the world. It will not only produce good deeds in the lives of believers, it will be good and profitable for unbelievers. We live in a pagan society. We are not called to protest and attack the world. We are not called to reform the world. We are called to do only one thing, and that is to proclaim and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the church is doing what the church has been called to do, then those in the world will get what they really need same thing jesus said in matthew 5 16 let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father who is in heaven we're going to close this morning by singing together hymn number 485 i'm going to ask you to stand as we sing And as God may have spoken to your heart this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come forward. Now, if you'll notice, this is a short song. So I'm not going to give you long. If God has spoken to your heart, you come today. And if you want to unite with this fellowship of believers, you come as we sing as well. Into My Heart, 485. Hang on just a second. Let me say this. God has done everything. It's His kindness, His love, His mercy, His grace. This song expresses all you have to do. And that is into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. That's all it takes. Opening your heart to Him, He does all the rest. Let's sing it in closing.